Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Saturday, October the 2nd, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire, now on Amazon Music. Also, as we announced, we're now partners with Minute Media, which means we'll be on the fan-sided network. RisingApple.com, welcoming those guys aboard, really appreciate their support, and I'm happy to be here with all of you. So, now that that's out of the way, you guys, hopefully, I know that there was some transition, and there's nothing you have to do, you should be able to, whatever subscription service you use, there should be nothing you do, we were transitioning over for about a week with the Minute Media people, and I really want to thank all of them over there, they were so supportive of the transition, this was such a uh, 
an unforeseen change of events, and we're really excited now to be part of RisingApple.com. You could syndicate the show over there, check out the great content over there. So when you get to the RisingApple.com page, you basically click on it, read a bunch of their articles. But if you want, there will be a player that will automatically update, and you can listen to the Talking Mets podcast. So we're really excited about that. If you've been living under a rock and did not listen to my announcement, we are now part of all that. It was a partnership that came pretty much together really quickly, and, um, you know, I put together a little five-minute clip there, and I know that some of the services, namely Apple, uh, hadn't updated with that announcement as we were transitioning. Most of the others did, so hopefully this show seamlessly integrates with Apple Podcasts. It should. You shouldn't have to do anything, and away you go. So where we are now on October 2nd, last time we were together... We kind of took a little break, and I think even taking last Sunday off as we were transitioning here to the new uh, partnership was a good thing because, look, the Mets were out of it. They're playing out the string. they got a couple of games left, and I come to you on a Saturday because it really doesn't matter a hell of a lot what happens over the next couple of days that's going to change this uh, this program. I think all of us can agree, whether you believed in this team throughout 2021 or didn't, you didn't see a scenario where going into this last weekend, they didn't even have a puncher's chance of changing things. I think all in all, as you look at how the NL East played out, as the Mets were playing throughout the season and, and kind of that number of 88 to 90 wins, which was an underachieving number in and of itself, was where this team needed to be to win the division. And they would have won the division if they had played at that level. Now, I think it would be very dangerous and insincere for me to just sit here and say, well, when Jacob deGrom went down on July 7th, and will never at this point pitch another pitch this season, he will not pitch another pitch this season, that the Mets season effectively took a bad turn and uh, they can never recover from it. That is true. But that would be an excuse. And I think, you know, the best case scenario, I've seen some people go out there and say, look, DeGrom probably missed about 17 starts. Normally does about 32 starts in a season. They were winning about 73% of his games before there. And everyone's going to go out and go, look, that probably would have put another 10, 11 wins in the Mets' coffers. Uh, look at that. Uh, they probably are playing for meaningful uh, baseball here in Atlanta this weekend. Well, for the most part, Tyler McGill, who looked, again, uh, as a very intriguing back end of the rotation option last night, uh, going into last night's game, the Mets were 9-8 and eight in McGill's starts. And if you want to just take those starts and transfer them over to DeGrom, I mean, some lazy math there, but good math nonetheless, uh, you're looking at another three wins. Not enough to really change the outcome of this division. Probably puts you uh, right there with the Phillies, you know, five, six games out. Atlanta uh, made some unsexy but important deadline moves, bringing in Duvall, uh, you know, guys like that, uh, you know, they, they, they had their own Thunderbolt in losing their star, uh, Acuna, Acuna Jr. for the rest of the season and probably bits of the first half of next year. And you got to give them a ton of credit. And I think what happened was when the Mets and really the replacement Mets, who did such a nice job of putting this team in a position for when their stars came back to really take off, that whole thing never transpired. In a lot of ways, the best part of 2021 was the replacements. I think when you talk about how difficult this year was, I think the most enjoyable run 
was not when you had, for the most part, your whole lineup together, even though that didn't happen very often, was when you didn't expect the Mets to win. And Luis Rojas talked about this, the sustainability of what they were doing during that very long period where they were in first place well over three months. It needed to be complemented with some strength on offense, games that you could go out against pitchers and teams that you should blow out and win 7-1, to 7-2. to So you could get your B and C relievers in there, rest your A relievers, add some margin of error when guys make errors, guys have off nights, and that never happened. And that's why you're here where you are today. This team had tons of Thunderbolts. Tons of Thunderbolts. And you have to admire the fact, I mean, 19 starting pitchers deep. That's crazy when you think about it. You have to admire the fact that they were actually in, to a certain degree, this thing, mathematically at least, until Labor Day. But when you can't hit consistently, you can't manufacture runs, they are a bad base running team. The fact that they never, and I make the joke on Twitter all year, they never score from second. Look at the numbers. There's no analytics to, 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 to do this. Driving runners from home, uh, I mean, excuse me, from third base with less than two outs, they're below 50%, historically bad. Uh, this is what the trend has been for this ball club pretty much since 2018, since June of 2018 when Sandy Alderson retired because of health issues. They've had one facet of the team, it's usually been the bullpen, go so bad, so historically bad, that it undermines any good that the rest of their roster does. And then you go into the offseason and say, well, if I just address that, then I have something cooking. And, that, and I've been supportive of that. And I'm not changing my tune here. There is no world right now that this team can rebuild. Not with this new owner, not with his pocketbook, not where we are as a society with the entertainment dollar, not where we are with the amount of competition you have in New York. Rebuilding and doing what you did in 2010, going into purgatory with a promise of a better future, will be the ultimate snake oil salesman plan that anybody could take on with this club, which is going to have a new president of baseball operations. When you look at what Sandy Alderson, and if you listen to that 40-minute-plus press conference, one of the biggest things he talked about is not really having a core. And that's probably the most disappointing aspect of what transpired here in 2021. Alonzo and Nimmo were really good. I've been preaching how good Nimmo is, and as everybody kept calling him a fourth outfielder, but I've been preaching how good Nimmo is. He's an elite run creator. Yes, he gets hurt. Yes, he has freak injuries, and that's something that could potentially be a derailment to him really meeting crazy expectations. But he's been really good, and Alonzo has reverted back to 2019 Alonzo, especially in the second half, where you know you get you know you know. Big hits, big home runs. He's probably been the one guy when everything went down, when everybody was, you know, spiraling against uh, L.A. and San Francisco. He was still doing his thing. Yeah, can he be pitched to in a big spot and maybe strikes out a little bit too much? Sure, he's not alone in that in today's game. But you have an elite top of the order run creator and an elite middle of the order bomber, and that's a really good place to start on offense. The big problem is, and putting aside the Lindor first year disappointment. Because that's a whole nother ball of wax. Your core, and one of these guys you thought maybe you would sign long-term, of Conforto, McNeil, Dom Smith, J.D. Davis, good offensive pieces that you could then build a bullpen around. 
augment a rotation around, build a bench around, were completely disappointing. And has gotten to the point where you question, even with Conforto, if all three are ever going to be the offensive players that they were prior. Because all three gave you very little reason to see consistency at any point. Maybe there was some component of injuries. Maybe it was coming out of the whole COVID situation. You know, shortened season and coming back and for Conforto playing for a contract. For JD earning a job. For McNeil continuing to show that he belongs. Although I thought that was pretty obvious after the shortened season, but maybe not. You cannot sit here and blame necessarily the fact that the Mets didn't go out and add to their roster effectively. The Pilars, the VRs, I know McCann gets criticized, but he gave you exactly what you need behind the plate. He managed the pitching staff. He controlled the running game. Uh, you know, he showed leadership in that part of the uh, of his of his game. He was not a good offensive player, but there's no reason why James McCann, when he came over, you were just you probably were foolish to believe he could be the guy that was an All Star offensive catcher. I thought that those were outliers. I didn't think he was this bad. I thought he was an improving you know guy that could hit for power and, and and at times was an automatic out and had a lot of the same offensive problems that their whole team had with execution. But, you know, that's not the problem. The problem is that your McNeil, your Dom Smith, your JD, your Conforto were below league average players for a majority of the year, had spurts where they showed who they were, but nothing that helped this team. So this is a collective drop in offense and the problem is I cannot see where a new president of baseball operations or the current regime here with Alderson running the, the show and his son probably being highly involved can just say, okay, we'll just fix this. I think he basically told you that. Look, not everything's negative. Uh, good bullpen, good defense. I think that the defense showed that some of the investment in analytics and whatnot have paid off. Because a lot of that good defense is because of shifts and what have you. So what's frustrating here for me as I come to you and as we, you know, I don't need to sit here and spend uh, an hour show recapping 2021. You know what went wrong. I gave you kind of a synopsis. I also don't want you to sit here and fool yourself. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you, well, they're just one or two players away. There's actually, ha- this is probably the most difficult, it's the most intriguing the most difficult offseason that potentially we've seen maybe in the history of New York Mets baseball. You have a CBA situation. You have big decisions on free agents that are going to require big money and could bottleneck your payroll regardless of what the new CBA says for years to come. And if you're wrong, things could get real ugly around here and you could lose another generation of fans in a manner that this team can't afford to lose right now. Not with a new owner coming in, not with that purging of that stench of mediocrity that I think the old ownership sometimes was labeled unfairly, but mainly because of their financial issues perpetuated. And now you're going into that offseason for the fourth time in five years with major upheaval. And that's scary because this could start to look like how the Knicks have looked for 20 years where there was always that hope because they had money, they were the Knicks, it was the Garden, that they could fix this quick. And you were leaning on the 90s. And you were leaning on that foundation. For the Mets, they've had some bursts, more so than the Knicks, in the two decades that we've talked about. 
but nothing that's lasted long. And right now, since 2016, and this was pointed out in, the, in, in, in all the columnists in the city, the Mets are one of like six teams that haven't made the postseason, but they haven't been rebuilding. Nor should they. Are you going to? I've been vehemently against it. So that shows you that there's a lot going on here. And those kind of teams, those are the teams that, unfortunately, when you're in that space, it's almost like purgatory in sports. Uh, the hopelessness seeps in, and you don't want that. There is a lot of hope in terms of what the players see. You've heard the players say there's a lot there. There's a desire to win. They love the clubhouse. Everybody wants to be back. Uh, you know. I don't know if that's just politicking because they know that this owner has a lot of money. That's the dangerous thing now. The owner has a lot of money, so they're always going to be batting their eyes at him. But it's hard for me to say that all these players that have had a good experience here, albeit they want to get paid, uh, don't see that there's something that we don't see. In the era of COVID and Zoom and the kind of journalism you get now, which is more building narratives than really reporting news, uh... We have to piece this together ourselves, and we have to be honest, but we also have to understand that not all the information out there is complete, so we're going to have to try to you know, do a leap of faith on our own eyes, on our own ears, and our own opinions. So a uh, lot more to come. We're going to talk about Alderson's press conference, what's next, the manager, and there is a huge decision on one free agent that i got to be honest with you. I'm torn on, and I can't believe I'm actually torn on it because I was so against this guy just a few weeks ago. All right, you're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with that and more right after this. It's exciting to reminisce about Johan Santana's no-hitter, the first in Mets history. But do we remember who quite literally put his career on the line to preserve the moment? Mike Puma, New York Post beat reporter and author of the book of These Walls Could Talk, certainly does. 3-1 coming to Molina. And a fly ball deep left field. Back goes Baxter onto the track. He makes the catch! What a play! And Baxter may be hurt. Yeah, and the thing was, Baxter at that point was just starting to get some uh, decent playing time for the Mets, and he had a he had a pretty good OPS. He was, you know, he was a lefty bat. He was he was starting to produce a little bit. It was the, it was kind of the peak of his career there. Uh, you know that that previous two months of the, you know because that was June first, so the first couple of months that 2012 season. Was the peak of his career. He's he's starting to play, and then uh, he gets hurt making that catch. And he's never the same again. You know, he he, he tried to come back. Uh, he was with the Cubs actually in '15, uh, uh, the year the the Mets went to the World Series, and uh, just just never got it back. And it, uh, you know, it, the the thing about it is, at least you, you go out and you, you're remembered for something big and. You know, Mets fans will never forget Mike Baxter. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Talking Mets Podcast here. Partners with Fansided, RisingApple.com. Check those guys out. Check the site. Check RisingApple.com. All right, so... Where we're at, you heard Sandy Alderson, and I, I outlined the whole season, the challenges, where they're at. Probably one of the more critical off-seasons, maybe the most critical off-season this franchise has had, maybe in their history, because this is a generation-defining situation. 
never good four and five years to have this kind of upheaval. Upheaval. We don't get, we don't see October baseball here, but we don't get October's off because you know everybody's always looking for a manager or a president of baseball operations or whatever. So here's the good and the bad. Alderson's quote about Steve Cohen is pretty appropriate. He talked about selling Steve Cohen, selling New York, selling the opportunity to realize the potential of a storied but not yet iconic franchise because that's where they want to get. And there's how there's a tremendous amount to offer with that. And and he's right. Don't forget, we've talked about it on this program for months. If you're new to the program, go back and listen to a couple. When the ownership changed on November 1st of last year and you were trying to compete and win and and, and play in the big deep end of the pool with free agents and put a contender together while rebuilding the foundation of analytics and farm system and player development and bringing all sorts of new people in, uh, that's not easy. It's not easy to do when you could start in the summer of the prior year. It's not easy to do when the owner's coming in, learning what baseball is all about, and really trying to build and recruit on two separate ends, front office, infrastructure, and field, which really all have to be harmonious. So, you know, we thought because of the money and because of, you know, sometimes the Mets have this way of eliciting magic because they're the Mets, that it would be easier and maybe not as uh, much pain with that. But we were wrong. And we were not too far off for about 100 days, but we were wrong because in the end, the process always kind of is true to itself. And unless you have dumb luck... You know, bad process leads to bad outcome. And I'm not saying the Mets process was all bad. I think the circumstances made it a difficult process. And that's why, um, you know, we are where we are today, not talking about any playoff baseball, not even talking about big games in Atlanta. Here's the problem with the statement by Alderson, and here's where I'm, I'm concerned. And I think Dave Lennon hit on it, and it may be a, a media narrative because they love ha- going after the Mets, but... When you listen to Alderson and you compare Alderson to what you heard last November when he came in, you're getting again the Alderson that sounds like uh, a lawyer defending somebody who made a, who did a political crime. You know, the coughing, the lack of flow of his conversation, the prepared statement. I know that people used to get crazy with Brody Van Wagenen because he was a salesman and he'd have those prepared statements and he'd be, you know, selling you a dream. But at least it was uplifting. And sometimes selling in, in this business is as much to do with getting fan belief and media belief as anything. But when Alderson came on and he was the guy that was going to be the bridge, I warned everybody that I thought that was a bad move. Now, let me put it out there. The Mets had no choice. Cohen had no choice. And I know this for a fact. You don't need Sherman and Heyman and anybody else to tell you this. And it should be common sense. I know for a fact, without Alderson, without Alderson's history in the MLB front office, without his stature as a good soldier, he's part of the good old boys network in baseball. That's important. That's always been important. That's been important in baseball probably since Abner Doubleday. Cohen very likely may have been squashed. And I'm not saying it would have been the A-Rod group, but that would have put the Mets and the ownership situation in some crazy chaotic flux. I mean, think about it. Think about what's happened uh, in the world with, you know, A-Rod divorcing J-Lo and how there was a lot of, 
you know, money being flown in there, cast of a thousands. That was going to be more of a, that was as much of a Ponzi scheme for entertainment purposes as anything. Would have been great for radio, great for, uh, you know, news copy, but not good for baseball. At least you have a guy with money. You may not like him. You may not like how he got the money. You got a guy with money. He has Alderson. Alderson's got to get him approved. Granted, Alderson thought by now he would have been back-end doing a lot of the other things around the team that need to be done from a marketing perspective and and all that stuff and really overseeing to make sure that the people he put in place are all together moving in the right direction with what their roles are. Porter happened. Zach Scott happened. And, you know, here we are now, uh, you know, on October 2nd. And away you go. Alderson's back in charge. Uh, I'm not going to get into how... You know, you criticize Alderson's hiring practices. There's a lot more to that. That's not what this show is about. Right now, you're hiring a president of baseball operations. And maybe that president of baseball operations will hire a manager. We'll see. Get to that in a minute. The man selling you on what what was just said about Cohen in New York, if that's indeed the guy, I'm sure Cohen will be involved with it, is not really a good salesman. You know the salesman you had? That was the guy that you had before him, Brody Van Wagenen. He could have sold it. He could have got in and gotten into the weeds and really made you feel good about this. Alderson, to me, garners respect for his time in the business. But just, and I was criticized for this. People got, oh, how can you say this about a cancer survivor? He's antiquated. He's arrogant. He's unlikable. He's not a good orator when, he come, when it comes to uh, thinking off the fly. It was. It's great to be a good orator in November of 2020 when the owner just took over and everybody's throwing bouquets and it's all speculative about how great the future is. A lot harder when you're in front of the media today after a disappointing season, after not one but two of your hires got involved in non-baseball-related activities that probably destroyed their careers, at least for one of them. And he shows every sign of not being strong and not exuding confidence. Nobody walked away from the Olderson press conference I mean, Dave Lennon talked about it in Newsday. Feeling good. Did you feel good? Ask yourself that. The only thing that you feel good about right now is that the owner is not the Wilpons and he has money and he has a lot of it. Assuming the global economy doesn't completely collapse and and his wealth goes away. And I don't think that's going to happen. There's nothing else to feel good about with that press conference. You got no answers. You got no direction. And quite honestly... To be fair to Alderson, that wasn't supposed to be his job. He's a patchwork. You know, there's going to be significant turnover. Is a good turnover? Is a bad turnover? I don't know. Now, here's the real interesting part of all this. Is you're almost in the same spot as you were a year ago. Because you haven't really started the president of baseball operations search. Which, to me, is it an HR thing because of Zach Scott? Or... Uh, I mean, I keep hearing about how, well, you can't talk to anybody because of their playoffs. I mean, come on. I mean, is baseball at a point where you can do a job now while you're working and go on an interview? I mean, I understand there's some, you know, be true to your employer, but you got to have an idea of who you're going to interview. And you also have to have an idea through back channels. That's why this guy's here. He was a big MLB executive. He's been in the game a thousand years. Through back channels, you have to think, that they have to know. Now, I've warned you from the start, there could be a a component 
this guy wasn't universally loved coming in, Steve Cohen. If you think everybody's going to just go and all of a sudden uh, say, sure, let me help Steve become the story that everybody thinks he is, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. You think they're going to make it easy for him? So there could be a component of that where they're getting shut out. And you have a liaison here that was out of the game for two years. I mean, you heard about when they brought in Porter, when they brought in Scott, how these guys had connections, how these guys were able to maneuver through the new front offices in a way that Alderson can't. Alderson is a methodical, slow, Washington, D.C. type bureaucrat. That's what you got. That's what you have to work with. Now, he's been successful in the past, but it's 2021. This game is now in the easy pass lane. Can he compete with that? Is his son who's in the cabinet now going to help there? Who else is going to work with him in that front office right now? Cohen doesn't know people around. Maybe he knows people around baseball, and he's certainly a celebrity. So this is a tough situation. The person that you've put in charge of selling this is not a salesperson. Now, can Cohen be? I don't know Cohen enough. You see the tweets, you've seen a few interviews. He's obviously very wealthy, very rich, but he's very wealthy and very rich because he knows how to play numbers. I don't know if he's a salesperson. Numbers in a game like Wall Street, you win because you make money and you lose because you don't make money. So it's not, there's no, no selling yourself, it's just performance. It's like hitting, it's like your numbers were this or your numbers were that. That's how ball players sell themselves. There's other things to it, but you get where I'm going. So this is a difficult situation for this team to be in. You're going to try to find a president of baseball operation in a time where, I'll be honest with you, you know, there's no Lou Lamorello type coming to the Mets. I mean, other than, well, let me back up. That's that's not true. You have Epstein, you have, and then you have Billy Bean. Those are the Lou Lamarillo types. That's what you could bring here. Guys with big resumes who want that one last challenge for their careers. You know, maybe being more so than Theo, who's um, you know, probably the, about the same age. But you know, in this day and age, these guys make so much money, they could do some other things in business. The stress and the travel and the pressure and the media. You know, At some point, you're not going to see guys going into the 70s and 80s doing this because they don't have to. It's a different world right now. I think we're waiting for a Pat Riley, a Bill Parcells, like I said, a Lamarillo. I'm not sure that that's going to happen. And there's only a couple of guys that fit that. Everybody else, if it's David Stearns, or Antonetti, or any of these other guys, I mean, it's like the manager search. If you didn't go for the experienced guy back in 2019, you might as well put a blanket over everybody else and pick one out of a hat, which they kind of did with Rojas. So I do know and I do agree with Alderson that this is an, uh, a franchise that's not yet iconic, but it's... It's historic. It's storied. And you're coming into a situation just like the Red Sox in 2000 where there's some good pieces here, but they need to be brought together to get to the next level. And who are the pieces you want to keep and who are the pieces you want to go is much more cloudy than it's ever been before. And then you got the manager who, and I agree with Ron Darling, you know, everybody wants to throw the manager off the, off the ship like he's the only reason that this happened. Like he's the reason. And he brought up, just like I have, I, I mentioned Gabe Kapler, who now is with a team that's going to be in the postseason and could win a championship. He mentioned Bob Melvin. He mentioned Terry Francona. By the way, Bob Melvin's one of the names that 
the Mets were looking at in 2010 when Alderson was trying to rebuild the team before they went with Terry Collins. So think about that. The manager who's been with the A's for 11 years that the was working for the Mets at the time as a scout who wanted the job. Alderson passed on for the purgatory gym teacher. The worst candidate out of all of them in that time. Well, Paul D. Podesta had a lot to do with that. Probably should have been, you know, if you wanted to get the Rojas type back then, Wally Backman, they weren't, they didn't want to touch that combustible guy. He was, he was too strong of an old school person. Now you have a guy like Rojas who could be back, like Backman in the sense where he grew up with the organization in a different way without the off the field stuff. And you want to throw him away. And you want to blame him because the team doesn't have energy. Managers could only manage the personalities that they have. Part of the reason the team doesn't have what you see energy is because A, they lose. And B, I think what bothers you as a fan is you have a lot of guys that go out there and are just baseball gym rats, for lack of a better word. They love the process. They love batting practice. They love keeping themselves in shape. They go. They play the game. They're good guys. And, you know, they're not good enough. Obviously, they weren't good enough. But not all of them are, you know, going to have flair. The one guy that has flair, and we'll get to him next, because he's the ultimate polarizing topic, is Javi Baez. And then I hear people say, well, he's too demonstrative. Well, what do you want? You want energy? Energy happens when you win. When Max Scherzer goes out there and strikes you out 15 times and makes you look foolish, you're not going to have energy. I don't care if it's Louis Rojas on the uh, on the bench, Joe Torre on the bench, Miller Huggins on the bench. Name a great manager or a manager you like. Aaron Boone, when they're winning, is great. Aaron Boone, when the Yankees are losing, is an idiot. Follow Twitter. You'll see what I mean. So the guy managed the clubhouse and is lauded for that. Like Darling said in the piece, you know, Darling talked about how you really don't know the guy because you're you're making your, your assumptions on Zoom. Um, the players love him. I don't think that they didn't play for him. I think at some point every team when they... Uh, overcome so many challenges and then they're out of it, you're going to have that energy level sip, you know, dip. I don't think they embarrassed themselves in terms of uh, of their play. They lost a lot of one-run games. They weren't getting blown out 8 nothing every night. They lost over 30 one-run games. And for a while, they were like, lost like 14 or 15 in a row or something like that. You know, take half of those, you know, you're talking about meaningful games this weekend. And I know what you're saying, well, if the queen were a man, blah, blah, blah. I don't think the manager's the problem. Now, I know it's clumsy. You don't have a president of baseball operations. You're going to foist this manager on them. But is the president of baseball operations going to complain that he's got Pete Alonso and Brandon Nimmo or Jacob DeGrom? Well, they're not my guys. What does it matter if the manager's a good manager? And when he leaves, if you fire him, and we may be having another podcast show next week very soon. And when he's let go, if he's let go, and then he goes to Baltimore or he goes to Tampa or he goes somewhere else and he becomes whatever, a manager at some point, whether it's now or five years from now, and they win, God help all of you when I start seeing the tweets and the articles about how stupid the Mets were. Because I warned you all season, this is not the place to look. And all you've done since the Dodger giant fiasco in August is look there. And it's all because you want to have a scapegoat. Because that's what makes you feel better. 
and the article was written, Andy Martino, who you, another guy that's polarizing here in the media, said it best. The reason it's harder to win and build a team here is because in Tampa, you could just do basic business baseball transactions without any regard to marketing media and what and, and the things that don't matter. You don't have to give Lindor a big contract because there's pressure to spend because you're New York and you're Steve Cohen. You just let him walk because it's the right business thing to do. And you could get back three or four non-discreet prospects because it's just baseball. It's fantasy baseball. There's no other surrounding stakeholders that drive your decision-making. There's no media. There's no fans. There's no New York. There's no, you know, it's, now that's, that's a, a unique situation because every team in this world of media has to win something. They have to give their fans something to sell tickets. But again, winning the offseason and doing things to throw people off uh, the ship. That's why you get 20 years of BS with the Knicks, making moves for the media, making moves to satisfy fans that, quite honestly, other than cheering for their team and loving the uniform, really don't understand the game by and large a lot. And that's my concern. So you have a lot of things going against you this offseason. I'm being very frank. I'm not trying to be negative. I'm not trying to say that things are all gloom and doom. You have a guy that can't sell the team trying to sell the team. You have some good bones and some good players that, you know, especially with the manager where who knows, you know, oh, a new president of baseball operation, not going to want to do that. Let's start fresh. God help you bring in somebody that sells them on rebuilding because it's so easy to come in and see this team. Let's just... Let's start over. You got free agents. You got a lot of the core going to free agency. It's getting expensive. You're going to have to go. If you want to keep a lot of these guys, you're going to have to go 250 plus million uh, in payroll. I think this this owner would do it in the short term with a demand that this has got to work and build up around it because in case it doesn't, let's sell it off and then have a shorter valley so they don't have to go back from scratch you know, and, and rebuild for six years. We could do a quick turnaround, something like maybe the Yankees or the Red Sox have done. But I'm really at a loss about who the next person should be. You tell me, would I be okay with Billy Bean or Theo Epstein? Sure. Are they coming here for a retirement gig to write a book and not put the same effort and, and take money and not put the same effort and time into the gig that they did 20, 15, 20 years ago when they were younger executives? I don't think that's who those guys are. But I would sure as hell make sure that that's part of the conversation. Everybody else, I don't want to hear that Stearns is from New York and look at Milwaukee. You have no idea how any of these other guys are going to do here. You have no idea how if they really understand the situation this team is in and could deal with this owner. We don't really know a lot about this owner and how he how he looks at things, how involved he is. Is he a guy that wants to be involved with a lot of the baseball decision-making like George Steinbrenner. We don't know. We don't get the coverage that we deserve because of a lot of restrictions that may or may not be lifted going into 2022. And then you add the component that you have a new age media that wants to spin narratives and create the news in their own eyes. So we sit here speculating and using our own brain and using our own thoughts and trying to be intelligent but we're not perfect, and we're making decisions on incomplete information, and that's what's crazy about the whole thing. So it's an exciting time. It's a critically important time, but I'm afraid to tell you, I think the wrong guy's captaining the ship. 
Nothing against Alderson as a person. I respect what he's done in the game. I understand he's a cancer survivor. That has nothing to do with what I'm saying. Nor will I give him a pass for that. Because if he's not healthy, then he shouldn't be doing the job. He should step away. He got Cohen approved. Give it to someone else. Now, I know you're going to say, well, that's what he's trying to do. But he should step away in general altogether. Not just hang around as this, this emeritus. Because as an emeritus, he can't sell diddly. He's uninspiring. Maybe behind closed doors when a camera's not on, a lot different. But I got to tell you, find that hard to believe. I'll tell you what, the guy they fired, Brody Van Wagenen, probably could have did a better job with it. I know you're going to go crazy. I'm not saying they should have kept him. That ship sailed. He would have sold this team better. I know a lot of people could sell this team better. A-Rod could sell this team better. Hire A-Rod as the emeritus. Be a straight. Think about that. All right, let's take a quick break. One of the biggest decisions this offseason is one of the toughest. Not just the president of baseball operations. Not just the fact that there's free agents that we really don't know what their value is in some way, shape, or form. But the one guy who we really know who he is will require a lot of money, is very tempting, but the overall package may be deceptive, and he could really cripple this franchise. He's totally the whole feast or famine signee, and that's Javi Baez. Let's talk about the temptation of Javi Baez, that and more, right after this. Putting together a team for next year, because everything you'd have to think is up in the air. Pop up, Baez, great diving catch! On a ball not hit very high in the air at all, Baez goes out and robs Lorenzo Kane of a base hit. That's a great... And then I know you guys expected Lindor to, to come around in some capacity, but how much do you think playing alongside Baez and Baez's energy has, has in turn kind of helped energize Lindor a little bit too? Yeah, it's, it's fun to watch those two interact in game and uh, in the in the clubhouse, in the dugout. Um and, and, you know, two two of the finest players of this game, and uh, in the, playing the middle, same middle infield. Uh, yeah, they're, they're fun to watch, and I I think you know because of their time uh, on the IL, we still haven't seen enough yet. We we haven't seen all the things that they can do out there, covering ground, talking, and uh, just moving moving on their own because uh, their abilities are always going to su- there's there's is going to suggest something that they they uh they do naturally according to that so uh there's a lot that we um notice here internally just on how good they are and how how, uh uh, they go out there and make some decisions just by knowing that they're gonna make a play or uh they're uh able to do some some stuff so i think they feed off each other like you say and uh, they're having a lot of fun out there um it's unfortunate that for now it's been just a, a short stint because of Lindor's time on the IL and then by spending the time on the IL. But even though in the, the little time that we've seen it, it's, it's, uh, it's exciting. It's exciting each day. And I think a lot of the, uh, or everyone here on the team, is, is just having fun by watching that, just even though it's, uh, it's only a short sample. How realistic do you think it is to, ex- uh, to re-sign Bias? Is it possible? Yes. Is it realistic? Maybe. I mean, it's hard for me to put you know, uh, odds on it. Um, uh, does Javi want to be here? Did he enjoy his stay? Uh, um, you know, what can be expected from him over the next several years? There are a lot of things that go into any free agent uh, decision. Um, 
But to say, no, there's absolutely no way that the hobby bias can be part of the Mets next year, no, I wouldn't be prepared to say that at this point. All right, we're back. I got to tell you, I was never at the trade deadline really overly excited about Javi Baez. Um, Didn't watch a ton of him. I I did know that he was a guy that you had to fear when he was up at the plate. You know, he could hit the ball out of the ballpark. But when you looked at the numbers, the amount of strikeouts, the free swinging, you know, he trended more towards league average since the pandemic season in Chicago. Um, You know... uh, it just was like, well, look, the Mets need offense. He's Lindor's buddy. Maybe he'll help Lindor for, you know, in the playoff run. And, and you know, what? You give up a first-round pick that you grabbed in a pandemic season, a guy who has really played very little in uh, the minor leagues. The Mets are a win-now mode. Who cares? It wasn't a painful transaction. But after the initial honeymoon, which wasn't much of a honeymoon, it was a negative honeymoon where he got hurt, he wasn't hitting, he was missing everything – you got really to see what kind of player he can be and why sometimes, and this is a very important thing that myself included, who obviously over the years has incorporated analytics more into his analysis than I ever did when I started doing this back in 2007. I'll tell you that much. I was very much more anecdotal and threw a lot of that stuff away. Um, Keep in mind that what you've seen over the last six weeks in New York in an environment where he's playing for a contract, some of the best career run rates that he ever has had, probably as good if not better than when he finished second in the MVP voting in 2018. When you look at some of the basic other type of things that go into that, he still swings a lot at pitches out of the zone. So it's not like he's all of a sudden become John Olerud. His batting average on balls in play is a little high, but it lines up with most of his other big years. So you're asking yourself, maybe being in Chicago, he got stale. He's a guy who you could tell needs to play with emotion, needs to have a good feel about his environment. Maybe playing in Chicago in a team that, one, got a little fat and then declined like any championship team eventually does. He needed to get out of there to get reinvigorated to be who he is. Now, money plays into that, and you wonder if that's why he's doing what he's doing. It's the same conversation we had about Cespedes, and there's a lot about him and Cespedes that come into play. Cespedes was a free swinger, to him, wasn't a patient hitter. He was a guy that could be mercurial. I'm not sure that Baez fits into that, but a lot of things change when you get a big contract. Sometimes you relax. Sometimes you mentally, maybe not overtly, retire. We don't know who this guy is will be going into his you know early to mid-30s. He brings all the things that this team needs. He's dynamic. He plays really good D, and he's versatile. You could throw him a third, second, short. I mean, I know he's played, I think he's even thrown some a first baseman's mid on. I'm sure you could throw him in the outfield in a pinch, but he could play both middle infielder positions and the corner, which is very valuable in case there's injuries, rest, uh, it allows you to look at your roster this offseason if he's there differently, if a player becomes available. Um, the extreme power is exciting. I know he drives you a little crazy because he's very aggressive on the base pads, but he's but he brings a component of a, that a station-to-station team that doesn't really even score on sack flies or from second on singles really needs. But I think what you saw in the Yankee series with 
how he and Lindor kind of went after Stanton and those guys. I think that's an edge that sometimes a very polished, professional, vanilla team needs. The Mets are a vanilla team. They're a fun team. They're a good team. It's not a knock on any of the guys. They're a vanilla team. They don't have the flair of the 06 Mets. And to a certain degree, in 2015, the flair with that team was the pitching staff. It wasn't the offense. And there's nothing wrong with having a boring, professional, winning team. Look, maybe the Rays fall into that. I don't see them enough. But I think that you do need some of that edge. And I think Baez certainly would provide that. Good and bad. The problem is, is that as you go, and I'm not going to get dive into the, uh, the luxury tax and the payroll and all that stuff today. I'm giving you very top-line thoughts as we head into the offseason. The guy who turned down a $180 million deal. It's about $30 million a year for six years that he already turned down. So you know that's the baseline. He's worth $30 million according to fan graphs. And if basic publicly available metrics are saying that, who the heck knows what his agent has to convince teams that he's worth that plus more? I do not think, and again, the new CBA plays into that, you cannot give him a 10-year deal. If that's what he's looking for, if he's looking to get Lindor money and years, if the years are important, you cannot sign up. You should never have signed up for 10 years with any player. You should not have signed up with that with Lindor. You can't do that with Javi Baez. I do think there might be some value in a shorter-term deal, more AAV with an opt-out. Maybe some of the uncertainty of the offseason will lend him to say, let's try this a little more. Uh, the market on shortstops is flooded, so that may hurt his value. Lot there to consider. The inventory on shortstops right now, it's the worst possible year for him to be a free agent. So there is some leverage there. You may be, from a Met perspective, say, look, take this shorter-term deal. We know what you can do. You know, We want to be able to still have flexibility to build. And then you could go back out in the market in two years. And you probably can't get it here, but you go out and get a, a billion dollars playing shortstop. You're still, what, 30 years old around there? You know, Javi Baez is not a, uh, an old guy. So, you know, I, I have to check to make sure what his, his age would be. Yeah, so right now, Javi Baez, yeah, he's 28 years old. In two years, three years, he's 31. He certainly won't get a 10-year deal, but away you go. Look, if he's looking for that contract, the last contract of his career, 10 years, he ain't going to get it here. Let's assume there's some middle ground. He, he has said he likes what he sees here. He's been one of the vocal ones that says he likes, he sees a lot of the desire to win that he saw in Chicago here. You know, he's seeing things on the back end that you and I don't see. Um but I'll tell you what, he could really make or break this franchise. I mean, think about it. If he gets $30-plus plus million a year, you have $60 million tied up in two players. If your luxury tax continues to be 210, 220, 60, 120, 180, you know, you're looking at 30% of your payroll-ish as these two guys. And if they are not built for New York or their games decline, or they're not as advertised, you are in a load of trouble with dead money because you're not going to be able to trade them. You could trade them and dump salary, maybe, maybe, as the contracts get later on, but probably not. Probably not. I also think you look at articles that have come out, and you got to remember, um, Steve Cohen's wife is of an Hispanic descent, and I think the Mets have made a conscious effort. They're doing videos with connecting the Hispanic community and have Omar Manaya doing it. And I think they understand that the Mets as a New York team are a hybrid. They're not Wall Street and 
stuffy like the Yankees. They want to be New York, and I think they want to blend into what the melting pot of New York is, specifically Queens. And having two in-prime Hispanic players will lend themselves very well to recruiting with, let's face it, a much more diverse community than it's ever been before. I mean, let's face it, Queens is not, you know, upper, you know, Wall Street. It's not. I mean, that's not controversial to say. That's fact. Go walk around most neighborhoods in Queens. Go walk around a half a mile around City Field. And look, you have tons of Long Island Mets fans and Manhattan Mets fans and Westchester. I get it. I'm not I'm not saying everybody's coming from Queens at City Field. But if you're really going to build the involvement of the franchise with the customer into the next generation, you have to do that. And what's going to be easier to sell from that standpoint? Javi Baez and Francisco Lindor, who probably could help each other out with playing in this crazy city, or Brandon Nimmo and Pete Alonso. And I love both Brandon Nimmo and Pete Alonso, but I don't think they're as sellable as those other two guys. The way the media landscape is today. The way the culture is today. Now, I'm not saying you sign them because of that, but it's a factor. You know, you've got to brand the Mets more as... A, you have to reach out to a more diverse customer base than ever before because that's how new york is changing just open your eyes and look around there's nothing wrong with it i'm not criticizing it i'm just telling you you can't just rely the average age or the median age i think in in the wall street journal article i saw recently was 59 and change for a baseball fan look if you're going to grab a younger generation it can't just be white it can't and it can't be in queens and the bronx and brooklyn it can't You have to embrace a different clientele because that's what your customer base has become. And that's the not only the the smart thing to do, because it's it's business, it's the right thing to do when you're living in an area. You can't you can't you can't dictate the area you're from. You're not you're not the Wyoming Mets. So that has to play into that decision. It has to. Now, is this the guy you want to die on the hill? Because if you sign him for thirty million dollars. What does that mean? It means you could lose DeGrom. It means maybe when Pete Alonso is a free agent, you might not be able to afford him. It means maybe you can't give Syndergaard the qualifying offer. We'll wrap up with that in a, in a little bit. Comforto's probably gone. You may have to go more value-driven. What about Stroman? There's a lot there. The Mets are going to need to really blow past the current, if it as it exists today, luxury tax and pay a tax if they want to keep their players and compete in the short term. Unless they want to do... And I don't want to hear about different ways they can rebuild. Like Joel Sherman wants them to go all value-driven. Those are bait-and-switches by the media to try to play GM. And then when they fail, they criticize them. Because if you go value-driven across the roster, like the Rays, and it fails, you get made fun of because you have all this money. Don't fall for the trap. They have to figure out, with the big-name free agents they have, what the value is that they could attest to them, where they won't go, hold that line, and then with the current value, what's realistic... Uh, what does that mean for the total payroll? And I think the current value right now is the guy's going to make $30 million a year with Javi Baez. I am not sold. And you heard Alderson. It's you know it's going to depend on what kind of contract Baez wants. And we don't know that yet. He's not saying yes. He's not saying no. I think it's going to be difficult because I think in the end, it may get too expensive. Somebody may come get crazy. And if they have a salary floor... It's going to change the dynamic of free agency because bad teams 
who don't want to spend like Miami are going to have to spend and may say, you know what, if we need to spend $30 million AAV, why not on this guy who, you know, is a really good player and maybe we could trade him if it doesn't work out. We got to spend, they're not going to spend it on, you know, 25 uh, non-discreet $2 million a year middle relievers. This is a tough, tough decision because you're probably getting the best version of Baez. You're probably getting the perfect version of Baez right now. The guy you saw that couldn't hit the side of a barn the first two weeks, that's not him either. He falls in between. But you're going to get a number of periods of time where he doesn't hit the side of a barn. And he's going to drive you crazy when he makes crazy outs in the bases. And he's going to maybe mouth off to the fans if he doesn't like things. He's got He's got an edge. Look at him. He's got an edge. Look at him in the Yankee series. So keep that in mind. Fascinating decision. I think... Again, and I'll, I'll wrap up in a minute on this. Six years, $180 million, I'm not going to necessarily say no to that. But I have to know where the threshold is for this owner, how much he wants to invest in payroll, what's the luxury tax penalty, and those are decisions that won't happen before December 1st. That's where this offseason is going to get crazy because unless a, an agreement comes shortly after the World Series quickly, and I doubt that with these two parties – with their labor negotiation and how much there's uh, animosity on both sides. Uh, I see this. Uh, I see Javi Baez and the Mets, if they do come to agreement, it's going to be well after the new year. So we're going to be talking about this a lot this offseason. The temptation of Javi Baez. Ooh, is it tempting? But boy, is it a feast or famine decision. And it could go horribly well. It could go horribly bad. I think Lindor plays into it. Does he help Lindor and make Lindor feel comfortable? Because right now you're married to Lindor. And you need that to work. And if it means bringing his friend on at a reasonable rate to make him feel better, it's not like his friend is Joe McEwing. Well, you got to take it seriously. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to wrap up talking about some other Mets free agents. Stroman, Conforto, Syndergaard. Oh, you know, throwing money around with uh, Steve Cohen's money with Syndergaard made me laugh this week. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast, also available on the risingapple.com fan-sided network. We're happy to have them on as business partners. Let's talk about this and more right after this. Being in the big leagues is hard work. What is one of the fun aspects of the job? Jay Horwitz, longtime PR director for the Mets, gave us some insight. Like a guy like Darryl Boston, the English I've ever worked with, he's a, he's a coach now with the White Sox. And like in the early 90s, we had a kangaroo court in the locker room. Like a lot of teams did. He used to put on his long robes and in long hair and robes, and he always included me. You know, he managed to find me something to make sure I was part of the group. We every three or four weeks we'd have these court sessions. The locker room would shut down, and Dow would be presiding. He would find me for getting too many guys for interviews. For for uh, you know, he would include me in things like. Um, they would buy me, uh, you know, when Brett Haberhang was on the team, they, they, we had a big one year with San Francisco, everybody had to shave your head, uh, you know, and, and we, we couldn't get a hair, we have to shave your head, uh, you know, to have team unity, including me in that kind of a thing. So guys like that made me feel part of the group, and uh, that was the fun part of the job. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. So, you know, we talked about 
the Mets season briefly and kind of the situation they're in. We talked about the concerns, at least the concerns I have about Alderson selling the team and trying to bring in this president of baseball operations. And we talked about the temptation of Javi Baez and all that comes with that and how difficult a decision it is. Now you have three other major free agents. Let's take Aaron Loop and put him to the side because I think guys like Aaron Loop, you could figure out a way to get a reasonable contract out there if they like to play here and nobody gets really silly and says, oh, you're our, our closer. Let's give you $15 million a year because I don't think Aaron Loop's a closer. And I don't think that's going to happen. Not with a, uh, a CBA turmoil offseason and not still with a an economy that I think it'll be very interesting how the owners, not just because of the CBA, I think with inflation in front of us, I think with health and safety still a concern out there, I think with entertainment dollars being sucked into other avenues, it's not a shoe-in that teams want to go crazy on payroll. Maybe the Mets do, but I'm not sure you're going to have six or seven other teams there as well, but we'll see. It'll, it's too soon to tell, but those are things to look at. Now you have, uh, let's just go quickly with Syndergaard. Uh, he's pitching tomorrow, Sunday. We got this one inning against Miami. Everyone's going gaga. His velocity's down. He's more of a 95, 96 mile per hour pitcher. Uh, his secondary stuff uh, certainly has separation of about seven or eight miles an hour, so that's good. Uh, does he know how to pitch? You know, we'll see. Has he learned in his time off? Has he learned that what Matt Harvey had, what Matt Harvey really has never been able to do? Being this scary 100-mile-an-hour with this wicked 92-mile-an-hour slider pitcher, that's probably not the guy we're going to see anymore. He has not come back from Tommy John's surgery the same way. Perhaps, perhaps that will change as we get to 2022. So not, let's not put it in the in the coffin yet. Let's not bury his, you know, Syndergaard pre-Tommy John yet. But it's been two years. Uh, and look, t- Zach Wheeler took a couple of years too, and, and look how he's come back. I mean, so let's not... Let's not act like it can't happen, but we also can't rely on it. we got to see what our eyes tell us. To offer him a $20 million qualifying offer is patently absurd because he's not going to get $20 million out on the market for one year. He's not. Uh, I think Andy Martino or some of the other guys said, look at Corey Kluber, $10, $11, $12 million. I think you can go and say, look, we'll give you a one-year deal. We're not going to give you the qualifying offer. We'll give you a one-year deal with an option, maybe tons of incentives on the one-year deal that can get him to $20 million, you know, making the All-Star team, Cy Young Award, all the stuff. But I am not giving you $20 million for one year because you don't know what you're going to get. You're going to have two innings, maybe three. I don't know if he's going to go multiple innings tomorrow. Three innings to work off of. And I don't care if he gets his, his, his head blown off tomorrow by the Braves. I don't care about that. I'm not going to change my decision on one inning on the, against the Marlins, one inning against the Braves. Noah Syndergaard has to show that he's durable, that he knows how to pitch, that he can pitch with less than his best stuff because he can't blow people away and he can't make mistakes like he used to with what I saw the other night. Now, is it possible that he goes the John Smoltz route and becomes a reliever and maybe he's your future closer as Diaz goes into free agency and what have you? Maybe. Maybe he's a good component out of the bullpen. Maybe he's a five-inning starter that gives you a really good five innings like Rich Hill. We don't know what you got right now. We know that you got a pitcher that's showing you that he's healthy because his arm is healthy, but what is this stuff going to look like? So people say it's a no-brainer to throw $20 million around. It's never a no-brainer. This is somebody's money. That's a lot of money. So I'm all for bringing him back, but it's got to be a negotiated, incentive-laden deal. And that's that. Anybody who says I'm wrong, 
promise you I'll be right. I'm almost much as confident that that's where this will go, if not with the Mets, with another team, as anything else. Second thing, uh, Stroman, because Conforto I'll get to last. Stroman, to me, is a top 25 pitcher. He pitched exactly kind of how I expected when they acquired him a couple of years ago. You were looking in that rotation for him to be your number three, who could possibly give you number one stuff. I will say this. I think the real benefit of Stroman, because he doesn't rely on pure velocity, and he does know how to pitch, that I feel like when he has a less than his best stuff, you're more than likely to be able to keep, you know, he probably could still produce, maybe not at the level he's at now. So if you give him a five-year deal, it's not like he is going to go out there and have to throw 100 miles an hour to be successful. He's not Syndergaard. Now, I know that a lot of people don't like his machismo, if that's the word you want to take it, or the fact that he's an Instagram athlete. He falls into that that genre, and guess what? If I only sign people based on who I liked, uh, it'd probably be very difficult to, to build a championship team. I don't like it either. I know that the media didn't like how after they had lost, he's out there liking his big plays on the mound in San Francisco. He went after Tim Healy, but of Newsday, but, you know, come on, that's that's silly stuff. Like, that's not reasons not to sign him. Uh, he's going to try to leverage this good year to the biggest contract possible. You're probably looking at giving him a similar type contract that you passed on Zach Wheeler. And, look, that looks bad right now, but I still think Zach Wheeler, Wheeler, Wheeler's health over the course of that contract will come into question as he gets later and later into that contract. And I will say this, I have more faith that Stroman will stay healthy. I think Stroman has... There's one thing you could say, and even if it's an Instagram athlete, machismo, that he does look at ways to take care of his body. And that's where the durability comes into play. He's very conscious of that. Diet, flexibility, uh, you know, give him a ton of credit on that. Uh, was he a phony when he opted out? Sure. It wasn't anything. It had nothing to do with the opt-out with COVID. He knew he wasn't healthy. He knew he could compromise himself with that calf and get hurt. And he looked for himself instead of the team. That's, that's called uh, smart business on his end. Nobody's going to throw millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars away to play in a 60-game season, and nobody's going to put the uniform ahead of their own personal interests when it comes to their pocketbook. Because guess what? The owners, and this is where I'll defend uh, the players. I defend the players more than you think. I think they're also living in a fantasy world sometimes when it comes to the world economy, but that's a whole different story. The players never are commodities. There's no reason why they can't turn around and commoditize the team that they're on. Don't like it? It's the world we live in. Get used to it. The days of the baby boomer 1950s, they ain't coming back. All right, so there's Stroman. Finally, Conforto. This is the one that I think is the most interesting because it's almost like we see Michael Conforto, and I have nothing against Michael Conforto. He's been a very solid Met. We kind of talked about him like he was David Wright on the way out the door uh, the other night of his last game at City Field. The Michael Conforto I saw this year... Uh, was a streaky player, was a player that looked mechanical and stiff for most of the season, was probably not the only reason, but one of the biggest reasons this offense disappointed. Um, his his numbers against lefties are disturbing. Even his numbers in the second half, which are better, are slightly above league average and not worth a big contract of, let's say, $25 million a year for seven years. Uh, you look at September... Uh, he's okay. He's had really one month where you could say he was the Michael Conforto you expected, and that was August. And, um, you know, he's not a, a worthless player. But I'll say this. I offer Michael Conforto the qualifying offer, which 
Boris won't take, but I think Boris may, you know, if I look into these numbers and I dive into how Conforto hit against lefties, the streakiness, I just don't see teams. I mean, maybe they'll get, he'll get a multi-year deal. I'm not saying he won't. And again, I go back to if the economics change with the salary floor, it'll be a lot more li- likely that he'll get a multi-year deal. But will he get the deal that we thought or he deserves at his age? Now, Boris is the kind of guy that's going to say, I'll get you a good deal here with an opt-out. You're 28, maybe in a year or two years. You go back into 30, prove yourself. If you don't prove yourself, you have the security of knowing that um, you hold the cards with the opt-out and uh, you still get paid. And you get paid probably more than what uh, the risk of a one-year deal would be. Uh, That's probably where he would go. I don't think he would accept the offer. If I were Michael Conforto and I really wanted to be here and I really wanted that big contract and I want to be, uh, you know, you're gambling. Remember something. Conforto's got to accept that qualifying offer before the CBA, in theory, has been finalized. And you're gambling what the new CBA will be. And you're gambling uh, a lot of unknowns that, quite honestly, if I'm confident in myself... I take $20 million, I go back home, I find out why I had this below-league average season, a season that's been as bad as his season when he was a a young player his first full year in 2016, when he got sent down to the minors that year, if you remember. Um, And then I walk away and say, how can I be more of the player that I was from 2017 to 2020? He's not trending towards the player that he was pre-shoulder injury when he was you know, an all-star. And he's certainly not the small sample size guy that was uh, probably the Mets' best offensive player. Guy who got on base, a guy who had for power, a guy with over 900 OPS. The best hitter on the team. He's a guy that probably should use all fields but doesn't do it consistently. And he's a guy that um, right now, if he's a guy that's compromised against lefties, you're going to have to sit him against tough lefties. How do you give a guy $25, $30 million a year on that? Very hard. Now, I'll give him a ton of credit. He's played outstanding defense and right. And I guarantee you Boris is going to sell that. I guarantee you. There is value to that. I mean, he won a game with him with his arm. But giving him a seven-year deal, uh, you know, $25 million a year, looking at seven years, $200 million. Jeez. I have a hard time. I mean, you're going to have to make decisions. And it starts with Javi Baez. I think you got to really decide... Are you really going to go in on this Javi Baez thing? Because, you know, you got Nick Castellanos and you start to look at some of the free agents out there as outfielders. And and look, um, you know, Kyle Schwarber's out there, a guy who's going to be one big money. You know, Jock Peterson. I mean, a lot of ways. I mean, I'm not a big Jock Peterson fan, but Conforto's season is kind of like Jock Peterson. Look at the numbers. There's Mark Kenna. I mean, do you go out, you know, out and, and go after Chris Bryant? I mean, you know, with some third base prospects in the system, you, know, you can look at that. So, um, I'm not ready to go all to the wall for Michael Conforto. And really, I think, and this is really the strategy, and this is all fluid because we still want to see, without a president of baseball operations and their thought process, and really hearing from the owner about what he believes needs to be done. We're all just spitballing here. All I'm giving you is early off-season thoughts. Here's what I do. I like Conforto. I like Baez. I like Syndergaard. I like Stroman. I like all four of them. Love all four of them back. Not sure it's realistic to get all four of them back and still build a team. I'm not putting loop into this because that's a separate conversation. Here's the value and here's the risk aversion type contract that I'm willing to offer you. 
You want to be part of this? So be it. If not, I walk away. I'm not sure any of those guys at this point you have to have. Now, sure, you have to have them, a version of them to win because they're good players, but you can probably replicate what you got this year somewhere else with all of them. Less so Baez, but, you know, Bryant's out there. He's versatile too. Castellanos is out there. There's other big-time offensive players. You know, you don't know what you got with Vientos and Brett Beatty. You do have some young, you know, Alvarez is young, but you got some offensive players coming up. You also have to figure out you got to sign your own offensive players like Pete, Nimmo, who, you know, soon are going to get expensive. Nimmo's going to be a free agent. If he stays healthy, I think you're going to look at Nimmo. Nimmo's a better player than Conforto. Maybe not complete on the defensive side, but as an offensive player, he's much more value. I'll say this. I think his value is more because his offense is so good, and I don't think his defense, especially in a corner, is all that bad. He's not Conforto defensively, but I, I, I think Conforto's offense drags down whatever good you have as a steady defensive player, which is funny. Always wear, be wary of scouts. This guy was lambasted. If you don't remember, this guy was lambasted as a defensive player when he came out of college. Lambasted. So that, to me, is all early off-season thoughts. Really, to summarize, guys, look, can't justify this year. There's no excuses. DeGrom was a big thunderbolt, and it ripped the heart and soul of the team out. But even with him with those 17 starts, I'm thinking that the Mets are still in that Phillies range because they could not win those close games, and the offense was the reason. You've got Alderson now trying to, for off-season number two in a row, sell this team. Do you really feel that Alderson could sell? Did he look like somebody that you could exude confidence in from that press conference the other day? If you haven't listened to it, it's out there. Listen to even, not all 40 minutes, listen to 15 minutes of it, 10 minutes of it. I didn't feel that way. Javi Baez is a huge temptation. High risk, high reward. I'm so torn on this. He could make or break a generation of this franchise. This franchise could be ugly with the financial situation that he and Lindor would put them in. But you may have no choice to sell them off the field and sell them on the field. And then as far as the rest of their free agents, make the offer that you believe is a fair offer. And they don't take it. Have fun because they are replaceable. And a replaceable maybe not in the same way. You may have to, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul and other parts of the, of the, of the team. But they're replaceable. I promise you that. All right, that's it. Uh, I want to thank everybody. Our first show with our Minute Media fan-sided RisingApple.com partnership. You can check me out over there all the time. You know, want to go there and check out the blog, Rising Apple. You want to go and uh, listen to the show. It's all there. Of course, I want to thank everybody for joining me and tuning in. You can check me out all the time at, at Mike Silver Media and the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Obviously, when you tweet me, I try to get to everybody at Mike Silver Media. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service. You should not have to change anything. I'm even on Amazon Music. Always want to hear from you. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Nice fall, nice weekend here. We'll be back with another show soon. I have a feeling there's going to be some Louis Rojas news coming out in a couple of days so you'll hear from me in a couple of days and then we'll figure out the rest of the offseason and the schedule till then take care everybody
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.